Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 331 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we sure do. We've got a feature with two authors from the same publisher, Lisa Williams-Klein, um, with her historical romance novel, Between the Sky and Sea, and Hope Carroll, also known as Betsy Thorpe, and her novel, The Veil Between Worlds, a time travel historical romance book. Next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale from Charlotte's Lit called How to Get Something Started, Part 3. Yeah, and we also have a writing topic discussion today with uh, author William Gray. His blog is on Always Be Workshopping. And then we're going to finish today, as always, with some reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming up in the next episode. Yeah, but first, uh, what's up with the podcast books? We uh, we had a great session uh, a couple weeks ago on March 1st with uh, Charlotte Litt, a conversation on our first book in the right quote series, The Writing Life. What'd y'all think? It was a lot of fun. We had some uh, some authors from the podcast show up and it was great to hear from them. Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. I feel like lots of laughs were had. Good quotes were shared. <laughs> a good evening. <laughs> yeah, thanks for y'all for showing up and attending that. It was great. We got to share some of our favorite quotes, although it's hard to just pick uh, you know a few favorite quotes from that. We could have gone on and on, but that's the whole, kind of the whole purpose of the of the series is to uh, be able to look back at it. And uh, actually after lots of uh, kerfuddling, if that's even a word with uh, Amazon, we finally got the uh, print book up. Um, It should be up by the time this comes out. So you can actually order uh, the book in print if you prefer to stick it in your pocket or your satchel or whatever and uh pull it out and read it that's uh available as well and also at park road books and wherever books are sold but um a reminder here let's give them a reminder how they can get it uh, for free who wants to do that sarah well you can join the street team um so if you go to our website i think it's on the contact tab there's a tab for the street team um if you sign up for that you'll get copies of all eight ebooks for free um we're just asking that you leave your honest reviews for us yeah, and also in addition to that, uh, with Patreon, uh, tell them about that, huh? If you join Patreon, you get all of the books for free, and you also get access to 155 exclusive author interviews that were not aired on the original show. Yeah, and a lot of those uh, quotes that are in those longer episodes appear in this eight-book series. But, uh, you know, we're trying to get this out there into the world Um in many different ways. The first book, whether you're on the street team or whether you're a Patreon supporter or not, uh, is free. You can go download it um, on any of the online sites, uh, the uh, the ebook that is, and scroll through it. But uh, again, as I said, if you prefer print, uh, it's out there in print now. And we'll be releasing them how often, Sarah? Once a month. So the first one is out now. Um, this episode, I think, comes out March 21st. So in about a week on April 1st, the second one will be out. And then they're coming out on the first of every, every month after that. Yeah. And the and the second one is called Learning to Write, which is something I had to do in my <laughs> mid-50s. <laughs> Even though I'd written all my life, it was a little bit different to write uh, fiction, is it not? Oh, yeah. We're always learning to write. I feel like that's what we do every time we record this podcast. Is <laughs> we're teaching ourselves. <laughs> Lifelong process. Yeah, so great. We're, we're really proud of this series. Um, proud of all the authors who appeared on the show and shared their wisdom. Um, a lot of great quotes here that uh, you can, please don't cut them out, but you can take a copy of them and stick them to your bulletin board or whatever that they might inspire you. We had some of those in our uh, launch there that we did with uh, Charlotte Litt, uh, just various quotes that speak to us. One of which for me was, it's never too late to start writing. And I, I think it started until my mid-50s. And uh, hey, look, I'm gonna, we're going to put out eight books this year. You know, So there you go. Big time author. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I had an idea. What if we did podcast fortune cookies with little quote nuggets in each fortune cookie? <laughs> 
fun. That'd be a big project. <laughs> the line is lighting up on my on my board here as as you speak. Uh, it looks like uh, all right. It looks like yeah, the votes in. They want fortune cookies. Well, you just have to figure out how to do that. Hannah. I'll make them myself. <laughs> yeah, I'll be folding the little cookies in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, like, with the dough. <laughs> So I, as you can tell, we're excited about the books. We hope you will get them. And if you read them and like them, please leave an online review that's honest uh, just to get the word out there so other people can experience uh, all this great uh, knowledge that uh, that we experienced uh, on the podcast when we asked the questions. So, all right. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's jump into uh, Act 1 uh, right after this. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, so um, Act 1, we've got uh, an interview. This is an interview with two local authors, uh, one of who's been on the show before, Lisa Williams-Klein, and, and uh, Hope Carroll, also known as Betsy Thorpe, the editor, but she's using the pen name Hope Carroll for her new series that's coming out. Uh, uh, their books are uh, Lisa's book, Between the Sky and Sea, and uh, we have uh, Betsy's book, uh, The Veil Between Worlds. Uh, both are published by Dragonblade. Hannah, could you tell us a little bit about Lisa? Yes, Lisa is the author of two novels for adults coming out this year, um, like you said, Between the Sky and the Sea and, the, and Ladies' Day. Um, she also has an essay collection called The Ruby Mirror and a short story collection called Take Me. Her stories and essays have appeared in a variety of publications. Yeah, and uh, Sarah, tell us about uh, Hope Carroll, also Betsy Thorpe. Sure. So um, Hope Carroll is Betsy's pen name. She's a longtime professional editor by day, a historical romance time travel author by night. Um, she was inspired to write the series Ladies of the Labyrinth based on her own experiences getting a master's in Middle English literature before 1525 at King's College London as an American studying abroad. That must have been a really cool experience. Um, and a little bit about their books. So they both have a romance element, but they're pretty different. Lisa's book is historical romance set in 1838 on board the elegant steamship Pulaski bound from Savannah to Baltimore. And Betsy's book, The Veil Between Worlds, is a medieval time travel historical romance book that pulls the protagonist back to the year 1334 during the reign of King Edward III. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the interview. I had a good time uh, talking with uh, both uh, Lisa and Betsy about their books. So let's hear let's hear the interview. Lisa, welcome to Charlotte Rear's podcast. Great to be here, Landis. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for letting us come on. Yeah, and thanks for coming back. And Betsy, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, and first, uh, congratulations are in order uh, for you, Betsy, for your book, uh, The Veil Between Worlds, and a couple more that are coming right after it. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Under my pseudonym of Hope Carroll. Yeah, Hope Carroll. Okay. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, for you, Lisa, for your book, uh, Between the Sky and the Sea, congratulations. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if I'm not mistaken, both these books, uh, they have an element uh, of historical romance in them uh, with Betsy's adding a little bit of time travel. And they're both published by the same publisher, Dragonblade. And I kind of want to talk first about your path. I'm not sure whether y'all knew you were headed in the same direction with this publisher, but starting first with Bess Betsy, tell us about Dragonblade, your path to connecting with them and a little bit about the publisher. Uh, Dragon Blade was started by a novelist called uh, Catherine Levesque, and uh, she is a prolific romance writer who had written 30 books self-published and up on Amazon, and she kind of discovered the secret sauce to marketing them on Amazon and getting lots of sales, and so she then thought, I can, I can start a publisher with my knowledge of this. Um, so I happened to come across a listing for them on Publishers Marketplace, which is where I get a lot of my insider knowledge about deals that people are making and who's selling what and who's representing what and what editors are there and what imprints are doing. So I just happened to be reading Publishers Lunch and I saw that two or three agents had just sold to her. And I thought, 
well, if the agents are selling to her, then uh, she must be good. So I went to their website and checked them out and um, submitted this book, which had been sitting in a drawer for a couple of years because I had a literary agent um, who was fantastic, but I fell between a lot of genres. It's time travel, it's romance, it's historical novels. So, um, you know, I couldn't quite fit into the women's fiction world which is now an outdated term and I couldn't fit into the pure romance term because it wasn't all about romance it's a lot of a lot of history and a lot of fun so um so yeah but luckily they did time travel um stories and so I kind of slipped in <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that uh more in just a minute uh come back to that uh Lisa, um, let's talk about your path to, to Dragon Blade uh, and maybe kind of use a blog post you wrote for the podcast. Listeners, uh, we have this thing called a community blog, and you can go on there, and Lisa's blog post is up there, and it's uh, called The Coveted Yet Dreaded Revise and Submit Letter. And so, Lisa, yes. perhaps you can yes, uh, give us a, a highlight uh, maybe from that blog post and then how your okay. perseverance landed you with Dragon Blade. Yes. Well, I, J Betsy and I are in the same writing group and she wrote, um, she wrote us in the writing group when she discovered Dragon Blade and said, oh, I found this new publisher and I, um, you know, you all just take a look. And at the time, I didn't know that Betsy had sent her book to Dragon Blade. And I, so I looked at the application and I didn't have an agent up for this book, um, but I could see that you could um, submit directly to them. Um, I had tried to get an agent. I, I tried many agents and had finally decided I would try smaller publishers. So I went ahead and sent to Dragonblade. Then I heard that Betsy, Betsy's book had been accepted by Dragonblade and she was going to be writing two more books. And that was very exciting. We were just all so excited for her. And um, then a few months later, I heard from Dragonblade and they said they um, liked what they saw, but they, I had written a lot of books for young people before, and they thought the voice of my, of my story was too, um, too young, that sounded too much like YA, and they wanted me to revise for a more adult audience, a more mature audience, have a more mature char main character, um, and have longer sentences and more complex sentence structure, they really wanted me to just overhaul the whole thing. And I decided to give it a try. So I did, and I sent it back to them. And I guess it took a couple of months, um, but then they wrote me back and they said, we we like it and we'd like to offer you a contract. So no, that's, um, that's great. You're, you persevered to persevere, you know, so. I, I, I did. I've, I've gotten a few of those revise and resubmit um, requests and I've looked at my um, percentage success and it's about 43%. So, so I, <laughs> so I've succeeded with less than half of them, but I have, you know, I have usually, I, I would say it's a wise thing to give it a try. If you get one, it's at least Absolutely. have an opportunity. And even if that person doesn't take it, it, uh, it, it might make your manuscript better because a lot of times they are saying, you know, tighten up the structure or we need more, um, more inflection points that are easier to see, or we things that strengthen the manuscript anyway. So right. even if they don't take it, they're good for somebody else. Well, keep in mind that 43%, if you're a major league baseball hitter, probably going <laughs> to break right. all the records, you know, that are out there. So, you know, batting, well, three, I, I batting didn't think 300, about, yeah. Yeah. batting 300 is pretty good. Uh, it doesn't feel that way when you're getting two thirds uh, back as rejections, but I know how that goes. Uh, all right, yeah. so let's do this. We're going to talk a little bit about the books. We're going to come back and talk writing as well. But uh, first, let's uh, touch a little bit on the veil between the two worlds, or I guess the veil the, between worlds. The veil between worlds. Was it mm -hmm. more than two worlds? So just two worlds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, it's just that not in the title, right? Veil between worlds. All right, so uh, I'm getting this uh, sort of Outlander vibe here a little bit. You know, yeah, about uh, yeah. this, which is a. Um, books that my wife loved and the movies as well. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the historical world in your novel um, and maybe a little bit about the protagonist uh, and what they seek to accomplish uh, in this novel. Right. So I actually was, um, I have a master's in middle English literature before 1525. Um, and I got that at King's College London. And that kind of sparked my interest in the medieval time world. So it's it's a time between the Norman invasion of 1066 and 1525. Um, and so I, in my next two books, I go past 1525 I go to 1545 uh, mythology that uh, the distance between us and the next world in some places is quite thin you can reach your hand through it so that's where the thin place the veil between worlds it's it, it can be very thin in places and if you look into um, the thin place you'll actually come up with the with the list of them online there's there's quite a few of these kind of magical places um and so she's sent back in time and she's has two little kids um that she's desperately trying to go back to so that's first and foremost in her mind and the second thing it second thing is that um this is all that she's ever studied in her entire life and she speaks middle english she speaks french she could communicate with the people so she's really torn she really wants to sit back and observe and enjoy but she also knows that if anything happens to her her kids would be would be left um you know motherless so mm -hmm. that was a, a terrifying thing for her so and i'm just curious before we jump over and talk about uh Lisa's book here real quick. Uh, Hope Carroll is the pen name of Betsy Thorpe. Uh, Betsy, is that to keep your editing business separate from your author business? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been in book publishing since 1992. So this is my 30th year um, in book publishing. And I have, everybody knows Betsy Thorpe as a, as an editor for, uh, for clients. Um independent clients for the last 18 years but working at the big houses in the first part of my career no not 18 years 22 years sorry so um yeah it passes quickly so I help about 50 authors a year um with everything from query letters to um you know book production independent publishing um and then long-term manuscript edits developmental edits so i did not want people to think that i had abandoned that role because it's still my full-time job this is something i do on nights and weekends and so i didn't i didn't want people to think that i was no longer available as their editor so i came, i came up with this with the well, pseudonym uh, uh often ask people the inspiration for their books, but what was the inspiration for the name Hope Carol? Hope is my middle name okay. and Carol is my grandmother's name, who was quite a character. And then with the extra L on the Carol, that is from uh, a town in New Hampshire that I drive past on my way to my parents' uh, place up there. So it just happened to coincide when I got my first agent. Um, she was I was looking for a pseudonym, and I happened to be driving by Carroll, New Hampshire, um, just past the White Mountains. And so I thought it was a cool juxtaposition. All right. Well, um, let's do this. Uh, between the sky and sea. Oh, got to put the word the in there. Between the sky and the sea. This is different because uh, last time, Lisa, we had you on the show, you were right in the middle grade and the YA. Yes. So I might come back and ask you a question about that. But first, tell us about the historical world in which your novel is set, uh, a little bit about the protagonist and you know, sort of what their goals are. 
Okay. Um, the, it takes place in 1838, and that is when the Pulaski um, sank off the coast of North Carolina. And I, when they start, when they found the remains of the Pulaski, and they were writing a lot about it in the Charlotte Observer and different North Carolina newspapers, I became very interested, and I started researching. And one of the articles that I read was about a couple who survived the wreck. Um, the the guy lashed together two deck settees and a few other pieces of flotsam and jetsam and made a raft and he pulled the woman up onto the raft with him and they had seen each other briefly on the ship before the wreck but they didn't um they didn't know each other or they hadn't been formally introduced um and and then the article said that and this article was written in 1838 um it said that they didn't know each other when he pulled her up onto the raft, but four days later, when they were rescued, they were engaged. <laughs> and I was, I was fascinated by that. And I thought, well, kind of a four day courtship and it would have all the adventures of an entire lifetime, you know, put into four days. And so I just started thinking about that and what those four days were like. Did they really marry? If they did, how did life in you know everyday life compared to a courtship during a crisis so that was the sort of my idea uh the guy she becomes engaged to is from new orleans so it takes place partially in savannah and partially in new orleans and then also at sea so. well that's interesting i've got this uh, vision of titanic when leo DiCaprio yes. is hanging on to the edge and he lets go yeah. and of course, in this one, I guess they both survive. But <laughs> right, and the major, the majority of the book is actually after they're rescued. So um, yeah. it's kind of a, it's it is it, it it starts out like that, but then it's um it goes in a different direction. So well, it's amazing, and I, I was talking with Betsy about this before we started about the the quote books were coming out, and Lisa, you're you're quoted in some of those books uh, from the podcast that go way back. And one of the, one of the questions we asked people was their inspiration. And a lot of authors talk about it's hard to explain where inspiration comes from. Sometimes it's something they hunt down. Sometimes it's something that just occurs to them. And uh, you know, this sounds like a very interesting kind of thing that if a writer discovers it, they need to write something about it. How did you discover this story, Lisa? I just read about it in the Charlotte Observer. I read um, about the the um, remains being found, and they they said that there were a, there were a lot of um, relics and artifacts being found because the people that were on the Pulaski were um, going up north for the summer um, to escape the heat of of Savannah, and they took all their um, China and their silver, and they took a lot of gold with them, and they they took a lot of things to to that they would use for entertaining once they got up north for the summer season, and so they were very excited about the prospect of finding all of these artifacts that were you know that mm. went to the bottom of the ocean. So, and the the article that I that I ended up reading it was from the Delaware Gazette in 1838. It said that. Um, my main character, he had taken $25,000 in gold onto the ship and, and that was, that was his life savings and it was gone. Mm. So I, I kind of went, I thought, wow. And so I kind of went with that. So I, I just, I kind of started with that article and tried to see where I could go from there. So well, it only takes a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a spark to, to, to mm -hmm. get going. Well, let's do this before we jump into some uh, writing life questions. Uh, uh, I think each of you have like a little, little short piece you're going to read uh, from the books to give us a flavor for it. Uh, Betsy, why don't you go first? And uh, if you need to set it up, that's fine. Or if you're starting from the beginning, you can just whatever. It's a little bit close to the beginning um, before we go back in time. But um, Ellie is our main character. She's a professor of Middle English who is staying with her best friend, um, who is also a professor of Middle English and happens to live in a castle that her grandparent left to them because uh, they made their fortune in toilet paper, um, <laughs> which I thought was an inelegant but kind of hysterical way to earn a fortune, um, especially noting how bad the toilet paper is in England. If you've ever traveled there, it's just not, doesn't measure up. 
Jane laughed in response. One raised eyebrow from you in tutorial was enough to set me off. I was trying not to laugh, so hard tears slid down my face. A noise stopped our laughter. It was a cross between a knock and a scraping noise coming from the front door. I jumped out of my seat. Jesus, what is that? I asked. Jane's eyes widened. She took a deep breath and started walking to the front door. What is that? I grabbed a fireplace shovel and got out my phone, ready to dial 999. A voice came through the front door. Jane, let me in. I need help. My heart did a cartwheel in my chest. I knew not that voice. Oh, no, not him. John? Jane ran over to the door, slid back the bolt. In the door came John, looking like he'd been beaten up. He sank to his knees. As I drew closer, the sweetly rank odor of the truly soused reached my nostrils. I stepped back. Thank God you're home, he said thickly. I need your help to get me out of... He twisted his body around to show her. Manacles? What the hell? Why are you shackled up like somebody who stole bread in Les Miserables? Jane said, crossing her arms and standing over him. Try 1344. He put up his arms. A solid iron hinge gripped his hands about ten inches apart, locked on one side. His right hand had bled, and the stain of old rusty blood ran underneath the metal. Jane squatted down next to him, examining the manacles up close. Did some girl leave you like this? Is this some kind of bondage thing gone wrong honestly john i prefer you not bringing in this into my house the children could see you and ask all sorts of questions and so that is the ex-boyfriend coming back very uh in a big way into ellie's life um and yes yeah, so uh, excitement ensues thereafter as john has evil machinations at hand and only she who has the knowledge about uh, the middle english would think to use the word manacles when she first sees <laughs> <him>, right? <laughs> exactly uh, exactly all right well let's do this uh that's great thank you um lisa i know you've got a little piece from uh from your book uh if it's not the beginning you want to set it up or just tell us where well, we are sure well i it's not exactly the beginning um i mentioned before that the two young people had seen each other on the ship but they had not been introduced and i thought it would be fun to write a scene where that's completely without dialogue of, of two people noticing each other so this is I just thought I'd I'd start, I'd read the part where they see each other on deck um, or in the, on the ship. Over his own beefsteak and claret, Mr. Whalen inquired about their travels to Saratoga Springs. As father detailed their plans for the summer, Lavinia let her gaze travel over the room and observed the headwear, hoping to spy some innovative or inspiring style she could get Mrs. Thomas and Abby to copy. Um, she's, they own a millinery shop. At that moment, a young man entered the dining room carrying a book. Slender and of medium height, he had wavy dark blonde hair, a bit longer than most men were wearing it these days, spectacles over expressive eyes, and a well-trimmed mustache. Almost in spite of herself, Lavinia admired his appearance and was intrigued by the fact that he had brought a book with him to dinner. Instantly, a fashionably dressed young woman sitting at another table with some of her friends pulled out her fan and spread it wide. Lavinia recognized the fan signal. The woman was silently inviting him to come talk to her. Well, that was bold. Would the young man oblige? Apparently not. Instead, he glanced Lavinia's way and seeing where her attention rested, gave her a look of exaggerated forbearance. Then he sat down and opened his book. Lavinia stifled a smile at their very satisfying moment of accord, shared completely without words. Lavinia, Mr. Whalen has asked you a question. Father's face was flushed and Lavinia feared she had embarrassed him. Mr. Whalen will think you rude. Have you stayed at Saratoga Springs before, Miss Onslow? Mr. Whalen repeated. My apologies. This will be my first visit. Lavinia smiled as graciously as she could, but chided herself. It wasn't like her to lose track of a conversation like this. That young man had abstracted her. And I'll stop there. <laughs> Those are great, yeah. No, and I, I would like to say uh, that I read them, but uh, the mail did arrive and y'all did get them to me, but it ended up in a place that uh, I didn't know about. And uh, I've got them now. They look forward to reading them. Those, uh, it'll be fun. So in the, in the remaining part, um, 
of the show here, do a little dive into the writing life a little bit. I want to start, uh, Betsy, with you. You talked about, um, you know, your work as an editor for many years. Um, I have interviewed uh, in the past some editors who became first-time authors. Uh, it was interesting to me what they had to say about that, and I'm curious as to what you might say, because um, it's one thing to sit on one side of the table and offer a critique to authors. It's quite another to go through it yourself. And I'm just wondering, I'll ask you this way. Are you now a more empathetic editor than you were before? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I'm actually very appreciative of anybody who gives me feedback pre-publication because um, my editor... Um, and Dragonblade saved my bacon in, in quite a few places where I couldn't see the forest, you know, for the trees. Um, and I had quite a few details that were not, you know, not in the right place. So I so appreciate having people help me out in that way, because when you're desperately in the throes of, of writing a book, um, it's really hard for you to concentrate on all the details that you've laid down. Um, so I, I definitely am more empathetic. I've been coaching people for 30 years on, you know, don't look at your own reviews on Goodreads. And Lisa is actually my, <laughs> she, she screens them for me, which is very kind because I can't, I can't look at my own page, um, just for my own mental health. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very different to kind of put yourself out there. I have ghostwritten a lot of books and that's, you know, that's a different thing, but that's somebody else's story. So this is my, you know, my invented fun story. I wrote it at a time in my life where I was going through a divorce. I had two very small children um, and I just wanted it to be a fun and exciting adventure novel for people who really needed an escape from the you know, from their daily lives. So that was, that was my goal with this. And so, you know, I hope it finds its audience and I hope that, that people enjoy it, but I definitely am a more empathetic person when it comes to, you know, avoiding critiques and <laughs> as much as possible. Well, I, I, I love fly fishing and sometimes uh, I've got a guide and, and sometimes he'll go somewhere else and be just the fisherman and let somebody else go. And I asked him one time if he could, let go of the, you know, fly fisherman guide thing and just be the person in the chair taking the direction from the guide. Were you able to, as the editor, turn that over, that responsibility over to the editor and accept the feedback? Uh, or or did you think, wait a minute, I've done this for years. I, that's not how I would go about doing that. Or uh, oh, interesting <laughs> question. Absolutely not. I, you know, I think there's... Um, you know, people who come down to you, and this was something in, in book publishing that is important to be aware of is, you know, how pliable should you be to editors and to their, you know, wishes and desires. And it's always been the people who are like, no, the muse has struck me and I will not change a thing. And those are the people that you do not want to work with <laughs> because they are just, you know, not malleable and not open to suggestions or criticism or whatever. I was absolutely open to her because I knew that you know she could read she was reading it fresh she had absolutely no background on it she didn't um you know she didn't she only wanted the best for my book and i think that's what editors all you know that's their job is to make the book better and to you know not serve you as your fragile human ego but to serve the book and so whatever makes the book better that's that's what we want yeah, that's that's well said from your years of experience. I have experienced that as a writer myself. Uh, you know, I had when I first started, I was a, a a lawyer starting to write, and it was harder to take that, you know, feedback. Now I welcome it because I see how much it does to make the the story even better. Plus, not only that, but sometimes if I don't agree necessarily, it'll spark something else. You know, that'll cause me to go in another direction. So that's great. Well, look, we could talk all day on this. I'm going to shift to Lisa for a second. I got a question I want to ask her about Lisa, you know, alluded earlier to the fact that when you're on the podcast before you're writing and you've written many, you know, middle grade YA books, and now you're shifting 
to another genre. And I'm just curious uh, what that was like for you. And you already talked a little bit about how, how you had to work on the voices with the editor, but what else did you have to be conscious of as you were making that shift? My material became different and my you know, you include love scenes when you don't include that in a middle grade book. Um, and a lot of what you include in an adult book in terms of interaction between characters, I think can be a lot, I don't know, a lot more um, complex. And um, I, it, I did have to really work on that because I think I had been in the habit of of um, writing for a younger um, audience. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, I had told all my stories from my own childhood. I told my grandmother's childhood. I told my kid's childhood. I was, I was out of childhood stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like it's time for me to try a new challenge. And I, I'm very um, excited that I was able to do that. And I, I really have to thank Betsy a lot because I, I, uh, she's in my group and she read every um, chapter of this book and she told me about Dragonblade. I never would have even known about it if she hadn't told our group about it. Yeah, so, well, um, one thing I noticed, and as I said, I hadn't read it, but I'm flipping through it. I noticed that you're, you're in third person, looks like close. Uh, and I think in the YA middle grade, the, the trend is more to be in the head and to go first person. So that must have yes. been something you had to navigate. Yes, I actually, I like writing in third person and I, that was an enjoyable thing for me to to do with too. I actually did start this out in third person and then I got the feedback that maybe it would be better if it was in first. Maybe we'd be closer to the, um, the um, main character. So I actually wrote a lot of it in first. And then I started looking at it and I decided I wanted to go back to third, but I think I had a lot of benefits. I got a lot of benefits from being in first person on for, during that one draft, because I think it, it, it enabled me to, to indeed get closer to the character and get more into her head. And then when I went back to third, it became more well-rounded, more, you know, better rounded. Well, your experiences you're talking about is a good example for, people who are listening, who are writers, that uh, you really have persevered because uh, you shifted <laughs> your your point of view, you you did the revise and submit, you really wanted this story to get out into the world, right? Well, another thing that I did, um, and Betsy, I could see Betsy smiling, another thing I did was I originally told the story in chronological order, and then I decided that it might be more interesting if I didn't tell it in chronological order. So I went back and I went into two time frames and I alternated chapters in current and past. And I did one draft like that. And then then people said, no, Lisa, this is really not working at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to chronological, but I then again, I think I did get some benefits from doing some of that that time that time shifting because it made it just made the story tighter i believe so there i got benefit out of all of it even though it was i did go through a lot of steps and a, you know i was willing to just go the distance whatever it was you know and it's so <laughs> funny to see lisa work because she you know you'll give her some feedback and then she'll be like okay i'll do it and then you expect to see something in a month or two and then she's like okay i'm done and it's been five days i mean she is such a fast worker it's really impressive well both of y'all have have had some stick to itness here because uh betsy you told me before we started about how when this book was accepted they wanted three books and yeah. they said send us two more Oh, I don't know, four months each. And four months like, each. You know, <laughs> and then with all y'all been doing. Well, look, we we could dive deeper, but uh we've got time for, for one more question. This is a question we've been asking a lot on the podcast. Uh and um it has to do with your experience. Um and the question is, we'll start uh Betsy with you. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value. Um, that had you known it, uh, it might have helped your younger writing self. Uh, 
back then, what would it be? Oh, first of all, I want to give two things. One is that when I was a very junior editor back up in New York at the big publishing houses, I was rejecting so many manuscripts. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give up this idea because they were good manuscripts and they were beautifully written. And I thought, if they're getting rejected, if I'm rejecting them because they're quote unquote, you know, not right for our imprint, how would I possibly get published? So I pushed that dream back for 15 years before I started again. And then I just got inspired to write. And then with historical novels, both Lisa and I, I think really got caught up in doing too much research. And, um, you know, I thought I had to know everything about Edward III and his wife, Philippa, and exactly, you know, what they ate and what they, and then my, our other third member of our group, Emily Pierce, has the bracket system, which I love, so that you could put whatever, you know, research that you need to, might go back to, and you put that in brackets. And so if it, if you, if it doesn't end up being part of the final draft, you don't have to research that. If you do need to research it, you can do it, but it really, really slows you down. And especially when working in, on a fast pace with these last two books of the Ladies of the Labyrinth series, I've had to just, you know, throw caution to the wind as far as historical research is, is concerned and not get caught up in all the details and only use the ones that I need. That's great advice. When I wrote the novel Deadly Declarations and I was researching the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, I went down some rabbit holes too. And uh, one of the things that I think you're describing is that uh, is that part of the manuscript that Elmore Leonard talks about in his top 10 rules, which is to cut it out because that's the part that readers skip. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so my strategy was to kind of move it around and make it part of the experience as opposed to trying, but if it becomes a data dump, yeah, they're not going to, they're not going to like it, you know? So great advice. So what about you, Lisa? What would you tell your younger writing self that might've helped her? Oh, um, I guess that a lot of being able to be successful as a writer is just stick-to-itiveness and working hard and practice you know, I think a lot of people think that when they write, they can just write a story and their first story should be great. Whereas with with like, with music or sports or any a lot of other things, people realize that you have to practice first. You would never try to go play a piece in a recital without practicing the piece many, many, many times. And I think I I thought when I was much younger, I thought, oh, well, you have to be brilliant. You have to be so, so talented and so gifted to be able to, it's such a hard um, um, world to be successful in. But if I had known that really hard work and just being willing to go to the distance was as big a part of success as as I have found it to be, I might not have been so intimidated about trying to write. I didn't even try to start doing it until I was almost 40 because I ha I was, you know, um, kind of paralyzed by fear. Yeah. Well, so, I was 55. I wasn't paralyzed by fear, but I was paralyzed <laughs> by ignorance, you know, when it came to the writing world. Uh, but yeah, your point is very uh, well taken. It's kind of in line with what Kathy Pickens said, who's been on the podcast before, a local mystery writer, uh, award-winning writer and creativity coach. Uh, she says, Persistence beats talent every time. Mm, and I, yeah. Not always I true, agree. but I'd say 90 some percent of the time, you know, for the people that are going to succeed, uh, it's the people that really get after it and uh, continue. And y'all have both gotten after it. I mean, three books in a short period of time here. Uh, you know, Hope, Carol, I guess I'll refer <laughs> to you that way here. <laughs> and uh, and also Lisa with your shift here. Uh, this is great. You're, y'all are continuing your dreams. It's uh, a lot of fun. Listen, uh, I want to thank you, Betsy, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. I loved it. It was so yeah. much fun. Yeah. And Lisa, thanks for being back on the show again. Oh, well, thanks for having me back, uh, Landis. And it was so fun to do it with Betsy, too. Yes. I mean, it, we just, it really was a fun time. Thank you so much. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. 
Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, uh, we're here in Act 2 with our writing topics with Charlotte Litt uh, in our community blog. We first got a uh, Charlotte Litt two-minute tip from Paul Reale called How to Get Something Started, uh, Part 3. So let's let's listen in to that. Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Litt with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the third of four tips about how to get something started. Emerging in novice writers, when they get to speak with a published writer, often ask this question, where do you get your ideas? It's the wrong question. A better question is, what makes something worth writing about? Today, we look at one way of finding something, what if questions. This is, Simply completing this sentence, what if X? This might be either a plot starter or a character starter, depending on what you come up with. Here are some examples from literature. What if a family on a day outing encounters a murderer on the loose? That becomes Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. What if a teenaged boy finds a bog body and falls in love with it? This becomes Karen Russell's The Bog Girl. Your action step today is to make a big list of what-if questions, scenarios or circumstances that might be worth exploring in your writing. What if you could talk to the dead? What if you lost your job without any warning? What if COVID returns worse than before? What if you took a month sabbatical and set off west without your phone? Notice that I said you, these aren't necessarily things that would happen to you, but to your characters in the story. Don't judge their quality, just write them as they come to you. After reaching 20 or more, see if one speaks to you as something you might like to write about. Populate the story with one or two characters, which might include you if these are real life events, and begin telling the story. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. Okay, I love this because I do like uh, the whole what-if game. It's um, how I got started with my first book. Uh, It was sort of uh, what if uh, a lawyer was stuck uh, representing a guy who thinks he works for Santa Claus and it turns out to be true. <laughs> and uh, that was the first book in the Christmas courtroom trilogy. And then it kind of exploded from there. And then with my daily declarations, it was, you know, what if three retirees stumble across, you know, a dead body and some missing papers that lead them to discover the answer to a mystery that people had made able to solve for 250 years. So that, those kind of things are fun. And Sarah, what was your what if for the plus one? Well, my what if was what if a female robotics engineer builds the perfect boyfriend and then starts to fall for him. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I really like the idea of starting with a what if because it gives you a good starting place, but it also leaves you very open ended. Like you're not pressuring yourself to answer the question yet. You're not pressuring yourself to figure out where the whole story is going to go. Um, and in fact, if you can see an answer immediately um, and see kind of the the whole story and the answer up front, then it might not be as compelling as if it's kind of a difficult question to answer. But if you find yourself thinking about it and really thinking like, hmm, how would this play out? Um, what are the different scenarios I could see here? How would a character get out of this sticky situation? Then that's that's where you get a really interesting story. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then I started playing it with the second book in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. And it was like, you know, what if they were delivering Christmas presents by drones? Because it was in the news at the time, <laughs> right? That drones were going to do, Amazon was going to maybe have presence delivered and I was starting to think about what if what if what if and then you know, what if uh, Santa's distribution system was under you know so it was kind of a way to kind of work into that story Hannah when you work with uh, authors as a publicist uh, of course they've written their books by then you get them 
But do you play what if games also in the marketing process? What if we did this? What if we did that? I mean, talk about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like thinking it from that perspective is really interesting, too, I feel like, because I, I always feel like for me as a publicist, I'm always just like, why not? Which I think what if kind of goes with that a lot. Like, what if we just tried, you know, like, what if we did this? What if we put your book with this group and also this group and then tied in some people up here, brought them down here? What about, you know, stuff like that? I feel like I'm an ideas person, too. Um, I always have like 8000 ideas and I try to string those together as much as I possibly can to, um, you know, just see what we can do with things. So I feel like, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think that's part of the fun process is dreaming big and saying, what if this actually happened? What if we did this and it actually worked? You know, like what, what if? So, I mean, I love that. And just a side note too, I love this tip also because it reminds me when I was a kid, we used to play, I feel like my introduction into storytelling was playing like, what, what would you do if some man just came out and started cackling in your face? <laughs> with my cousins <laughs> just like random scenarios and like <laughs> and we would collaborate on like little picture book stories with these like what if crazy scenarios so i feel like i have a special connection to this it's <laughs> a, a great way to get in the story i, I encourage y'all to follow paul's action step there to uh, start making a list of what ifs and you never know which one's going to lead uh to that next uh, story poem or even a full-blown novel it can happen um, so now I guess I'll ask, you know, what if we dealt with a community blog post? It'd probably be fun, right? So let's do that. Yeah. Our blogger, uh, for the day is, uh, author William Gray, his title of his, of his blog post is always be workshopping. Uh, tell us, uh, about William, sir. Yeah, so um, William tells us that he's a lifelong reader. He set out in 2018 to tell his father's story through the lens of fiction. The outcome is The Man Behind the Door, which he self-published in 2022, which focuses on grief, trauma, and addiction, but with a ghost story spin. Then his next novel, The Devil Within Us All, is inspired by those who have used their power to manipulate and bring out the worst in others. Uh, when William isn't writing, he spends as much time as he can with his family. He also works full-time as a pharmacy technician. All right. Okay. That probably gives him some ideas too, being back there in the pharmacy. So uh, let's uh, listen to what William has to say about uh, always be workshopping. As an author, one of the many things I've struggled with since beginning this journey is time. There's simply not enough of it to go around when you're raising a family, working full time, trying to build a brand and attempting to bring your already published work to the public's attention. How on earth do you find time to write? The truth is more brutal than most would like to admit. There are days that I go without writing a single word. I know it's the equivalent of blasphemy if you're a writer. It's not that I'm doing nothing those days. I'm constantly building my brand via Twitter. I'm interacting with potential readers, and I'm trying to find new and inventive ways to reach a new audience. Some days I simply have to prioritize, and as much as it pains me, I have to leave my word processor untouched. Here's the real beauty, though. On days that I can't find enough minutes in the day to lay down a single word, I still work on my writing in progress. I would even go as far as to argue that those days when I don't write are the most important, and I'll get to that in a moment. It started with my debut novel, The Man Behind the Door. Back then, I always found time to write daily, which was amazing. I would put down anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 words regularly, sometimes even more. That feels crazy to say now, but it was a passion project. Despite all that time, I still spent hours a day workshopping my ideas. Basically, any free moment I got, but I couldn't actually write, I turned ideas over in my head. I just looked at a scene from every angle, played it out as many ways as I could imagine, and saw how it fit into both the overarching plot as well as the theme of my work. I still do this to this day because I feel that is the best way to figure out if what you've got is actually good. I can't tell you how many scenes and plot lines have changed or entirely abandoned due to this, and for the better. Imagine your plot as a balloon filled with tiny pinprick holes you wouldn't know that they had those holes in it until it was filled up with air, right? That doesn't sound too bad until you spend the time to blow it up or write it and then realize too late that there's a plot hole, just a regular hole. No, it's a terrible, terrible metaphor. It's ridiculous, but it's also accurate. I imagine that what I do is the equivalent of taking that balloon, putting it under the magnifying glass and stretching it so I can see those tiny holes. As ridiculous as that sounds, it really works. There was a point where I had an idea for a third book, and I was so excited about it. I wrote the prologue, and man, did that thing rule. I got through this first chapter, and that feeling held. I started chapter two, and it was dead on arrival. Something was wrong in the same way 
that characters and books always say that something isn't right. Rather than forcing it, I put it under the microscope. I, start I started turning it over, thinking about it, and really ripping it to shreds as I began to work on what is now officially going to be my third book. I didn't give up on my novel. I simply gave it the time it needed to grow. And boy, did that idea grow. Despite not putting a single word down for over seven months, I never stopped workshopping it. Even as I did the same for my current writing in progress, I always made sure to return to it periodically. Now, I have an idea that grew from the soil of that original story and is so much more incredible than what I had before. So, when you don't have time to write, workshop it. Keep the flame burning and figure out how to make the story even better when you get back to the blank page. I promise you that you'll be happy that you did. All right, well, we can uh, we can hear a little passion there in the voice, a little excitement about great writing. reader. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's he's in a hurry to write his next book, right? You know, so he's mm -hmm. he's after it. I love that uh, he says he's always searching for new audiences. We'll hope we'll find some here, William, uh, with this uh, great advice. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Uh, there was so much good stuff in there. First of all, the balloon metaphor is the good metaphor. So don't say that it's a terrible one, William. <laughs> I think it's a great metaphor. Um, but yeah, there, I think like a lot of writers aren't able to write every day. And I know that some people will say you have to write every day. You have to do it every day. But, you know, everyone's life is different. different. Everyone's working process is different. For some people, it's just not feasible or it's just not kind of how they think and how they work. Um, and I think a big part of writing is not just actually physically putting the words down on the page or on the computer screen, um, it's thinking and it's giving yourself that space to to let your mind kind of work things out. Um, I know for me, a lot of times I'll spend months kind of thinking about a project in the back of my head. I think Landis calls this the cogitating stage, right? <laughs> um, before I actually start writing it. And that's that's important. So I think one thing that's helpful with that, though, is to have some consistency. So even if you're not able to write every day to at least try to to write a little bit or at least, you know, read back over what you've written or notes you made for yourself, you know, every few days or once a week or something just to keep it fresh in your mind. And that way your subconscious will keep kind of attacking it while you're not actively looking at the page. Yeah, Hannah, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, again, he's an excellent reader. I almost feel like he was just speaking without, like, you wouldn't know he was reading from a blog post, which I think is just awesome. So much personality in there. I love it. Um, I mean, a couple things. I think workshopping is kind of a cool way of looking at writing because it might take off some of the pressure a little bit, too, if you're kind of just like, okay, I'm going to do... Workshop, to me, is kind of like a fun term. I don't know if that's something that everyone feels, but it's like workshopping something, like going in there and kind of crafting something new, taking what you already have and sort of tweaking it a little bit. Um, it might sound a little bit less intimidating than just looking at a blank page or like starting, you know, you know, whatever it might be, just kind of looking at it in that way. So I think that's really kind of a cool thing. And um, I love how he said towards the end that the ideas that grew from the soil. So like he's always kind of, you know, by workshopping, he's kind of planting those seeds and watching the story grow. Um, I think that's a really cool way to put it. And I, I agree also, Sarah, I think the balloon uh, metaphor is cool and I can I, th I like that because you can like physically I feel like I can hear the stretching of like a balloon <laughs> like that rubber under a magnifying glass I know exactly what he's talking about with just like seeing holes and you know it's just kind of a cool way to look at it but yeah it's like if you look at the plot of your story and you see kind of where you can plant more seeds and grow something new it's just kind of a neat way to look at the overall process yeah, and as I was listening, I was thinking about the term workshopping and seeing it one way and maybe hearing him talk about it in another. Because I think about workshopping is, you know, you get in a circle with seven other people and let them uh, beat you over your head with, you know, what you've written and uh, kind of respond to it with your sitting on your hands and then wait till they finish and so forth. But I, his is almost like, uh, you know, you're taking your uh, – project into your workshop and you continuing to refine it and work on it and that kind of thing. And I do like the blue. Hey, we're three for three on the bloom metaphor only because I, I feel like <laughs> you know, with, with those pen pricks that authors can sometimes feel deflated, right? Uh, when that air seeps out of the story they thought was going to be better than it was. And yet there's always opportunity for, you know, a little glue here and a, another effort of puffing it up and getting it like it should be. So Hey, William, don't apologize for your metaphors. You know, you're all good. <laughs> Rock on, William. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, 
All right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna jump into our Act Three uh, right after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond Three Hundred, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, we've got uh, book recommendations, some listener engagement with an elevator pitch, and uh, what's coming next. So starting with the books. Uh, Sarah, what you got? So I'm recommending um, something a little bit different this time. This is actually a poetry anthology called The Rattle Bag, um, edited by Seamus Haney and Ted Hughes. I picked up a used copy of this years ago at some bookstore in LA for I think a dollar. And it was probably one of the best dollars I've ever spent. <laughs> it's um, It's a long collection. There's a lot of stuff in there. It's very sort of random in terms of the poets that are included and the subject matter. Um, some of them are very like old traditional poems. Some of them are 20th century, but they're all interesting and unique in their own ways. Um, very, you can tell it's carefully curated, even though it's long. Um, and it's kind of fun to just sort of pick it up and flip to a random page and read a poem when you want some inspiration. Um, so if anyone's interested in poetry, I would definitely recommend this collection, The Rattle Bag. All right, and I know Hannah's going to say she likes the title, right? Because you literally, yeah, I was like another great title. Yeah, <laughs> the rattle bag. Yeah. Do you have anything for us, Hannah? Yeah, I uh, I want to recommend Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and the reason I'm doing well, I love the book, but um, at our event with Charlotte Litt a couple of weeks ago, uh, I shared one of her quotes that really kind of got me thinking about writing, which was like, she just goes, you know, I love all my readers, I love you guys, but I'm I'm writing this for me. Like, don't make any mistake, this is for me, um, and I I really love that, and I've read all of her books probably several times actually, but this is a really good one. It's her latest. And uh, it's kind of just about how she broke out of this sort of mold that she'd been living in her whole life. And she was, you know, a mom, a divorced parent uh, um, or a divorced woman. And, you know, she just recently got married to a woman versus a man. It's like this whole thing where she just felt like she was living in this box and she just had to kind of become untamed as her thing. And she just decided she's going to do what she wants to do. And she has a really uh, real tone. It's um, definitely a heartfelt memoir and you just kind of feel it feel her heart sort of pouring out on the pages um, throughout the whole thing. So I'm recommending that one today. Right, that's great. Well, um, I'm recommending a, book, recommending a book called The Old Man and the Boy by Robert Ruark. Uh, this was given to me by a friend, Bob Bob Pryor, if you're listening. Yeah, thank you. Um, when I had, had Simon, my grandson, it's a, it's a real classic. It was first published in 1957. It's about a friendship between a boy and his grandfather, and they – they hunt together, they fish together, they go do things together, and he sort of, they sort of teach each other about life. So, very fun. Mm. So, if you like that kind of story, check out the old man and the boy, not the old man in the sea, the old man <laughs> and the boy. Yeah, I'm gonna get that for my dad. Yeah, I think yeah, he'd yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, all right. Well, let's hear what uh, Mark West uh, has to recommend this week. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is Junius J. Ward's new poetry collection, which is titled Composition. This book came out from Button Poetry in February. Ward is the official poet laureate of Charlotte. He is perhaps best known for his slam poetry performances, but he also writes more literary poems. The poems in composition reflect this more literary side of Ward's poetry. Composition features 37 poems, many of which deal with his experiences growing up in a multiracial family in a small town in North Carolina. These poems are powerful, moving, and provocative. I highly recommend Composition by Junius J. Ward. Yeah, and I think, Sarah, you could add a postscript to that because you interviewed him for the podcast uh, episode that came out, uh, I think, in February. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I read this book composition and got to talk to Jay about it. And yeah, I would definitely recommend picking up this book. It was amazing. Um, he's so innovative, innovative and experimental with the different types of forms that he uses, like every poem was just a totally different experience. So it was it was really a good read. Definitely recommend that. All right, that's great. We've got an elevator pitch now. Um, let's, uh, let's hear that. And uh, here we go. My name is Jean Ann Feldeisen. At the age of 73, I'm having my first poetry chapbook published this spring by Main Street Rag Publishing Company. My poems are about aging and grieving, about relationships that work or don't work, and the struggle to make meaning of it all. You can find my book at MainStreetRag.com under my name, Jean Ann Feldeisen. All right. Thanks, Jean. I love that. Goes back to my, it's never too right, late to uh, yeah. start writing. Yeah. She may have been writing for a while, but she says, you know, her first public, published chat book, that's uh, super. Congratulations. Uh, so, folks, if you're, you like poetry, check that out. Uh, and uh, hey, as we wrap up today, um, you know, uh, let's see. Okay, Sarah, you with the uh, best podcast voice. Tell us what's coming next. Uh, next time we're going to feature um, author Leah Conan and her suspense novel, You Should Have Told Me, which was a Pace Magazine most anticipated book of 2023. It was also featured in Vogue, The Skim, Baby List, and Crime Reads. We also feature Cameron Pulverari, author of From the Fire Scattered There, and her blog post titled Minus Suggest a Hammock, which explores the role of rest for writers. And then we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, our elevator pitches, and our book recommendations. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, all right. Well, Hannah, take us on. Just everyone out there, read on, ride on, and rock on. <laughs> <laughs> <There you go>. Bye. <laughs>